the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan says he can ease the incredible property tax burden that city homeowners and businesses bear through a plan to increase taxes on vacant and blighted land. But will this work? How will it work? And even if it does, will it be enough to stop the damage that high property taxes are doing to city residents? We'll talk about it next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join today. Of all the many structural problems we have in Detroit city government, the one that I think and talk the most about is the property tax. It's so broken, in fact, that I've just begun to call it a scourge. It menaces Detroiters at nearly every point on the economic scale. Poor Detroiters, for example, have seen the property tax and their inability to pay it cause the literal seizure of their homes. They lose the most valuable assets in their lives because, well, they couldn't come up with money to pay property taxes. This practice, tax foreclosure, is the single greatest creator of the blight that we see in so many of our neighborhoods today. And at the top of the economic scale, the property tax serves as a tremendous disincentive to even live here in Detroit. Because the rate is so high, you could live in almost any other community, even the wealthiest ones, for less money than if you buy a house in Detroit. A recent proposal by Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan hopes to change this at least a little bit. It's called a land value tax plan, and it was unveiled at the Mackinac Policy Conference. The mayor says he could provide tax relief for homeowners and most businesses by increasing tax rates on vacant and blighted properties. The goal is to shift the burden from Detroiters living in and trying to improve their properties and neighborhoods to land speculators, who in many cases have profited from the city's current tax system without providing value to the community. But what exactly would this plan do, and how would it help? The office of the chief financial officer for the city of Detroit answered this very question in a recent statement. He highlighted a 2022 study by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and that study advocates for what's called split-rate property taxation, a system of taxing land at a different rate than houses or improvements. What exactly is split rate or land value property taxation and how does it work? And would it really make the property tax less of a scourge, a menace for Detroiters? A little bit ago, I spoke with the study's lead author, University of Nebraska-Lincoln economics professor John Anderson, and we talked foremost about how he would describe split-rate taxation to Detroiters. Unlike the traditional property tax, which applies the same tax rate to both the value of the land and the value of a structure that may be on the land, in this case, you split the rates and you apply a higher rate of taxation to the land portion of the property value and a lower rate to the improvements or the building's value portion of the property value. So you can split the rate, but the basic idea is a higher tax on land relative to the tax on structures. And the goal here, why would this help Detroit homeowners if we did this? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And and when we think about uh, the, the impacts of uh, property taxation, we're thinking about two 
primary goals, right? One goal is the efficiency of the tax system, and the other is the equity of the tax system. And so from an efficiency point of view, uh, we're talking about the extent to which the tax distorts markets, either markets for land or real estate markets for structures. And so we we don't want the tax to uh, create the distortions in uh, the real estate market. So what would happen with a higher tax on land, of course, is that it would discourage the holding of vacant land and it would remove the disincentive there is for making improvements on the land, uh, developing the land or redeveloping the land and putting structures on it. So that side of it is the efficiency effects, right? Discouraging the holding of vacant land and encouraging the development of the land with uh, structures. The other goal, of course, is uh, has to do with equity, fairness in the property tax system, and we care about that uh, immensely as well. And in this case, the uh, our estimates uh, of a two-rate or split-rate property tax system in Detroit would result in a reduction in uh, property tax bills for uh, the vast majority of residential property owners in the city. And of course, lower property tax bills would result in higher property values for those homeowners. So uh, as part of your study, you looked at some municipalities in Pennsylvania that adopted these split rate tax systems. I'm wondering if you can talk about how it worked out for them and whether we could expect the same results in a city like Detroit, which is really kind of different from uh, from most other cities in the sense of its size and how much vacant land we have essentially created over the last 50 years. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And uh, so uh, we commissioned uh, several background studies as part of, of the larger study here. And one of those focused specifically on Pennsylvania cities where they have implemented split rate taxes. Approximately 20 cities in Pennsylvania have had or currently have uh, split rate taxes. Most notably, the city of Pittsburgh, which had a split rate tax regime for quite a few years. And in particular, during the 1970s and 80s, when uh, Pittsburgh was uh, a declining uh, industrial city, uh, due to the steel industry. So not not completely unlike Detroit in that uh, regard. Some of the other uh, Pennsylvania cities we looked at are smaller, of course, and and maybe not uh, as comparable to the city of Detroit. But the analysis of the impacts of split rate taxation in uh, the Pittsburgh cities were incorporated into our thinking about uh, what could happen in Detroit. The evidence is that the split rate system uh, encouraged business formation or business location in those Pennsylvania cities, uh, which would uh, be beneficial. We think the same thing uh, would be likely to happen in Detroit as a result of the implementation of a split rate tax system. So increased business activity and increased overall property values as a result of the split rate system. The value of land uh, may go down somewhat, according to our estimates, but the overall property values go up because of the uh, lighter taxation of the structures. Okay, so that's the theory behind split rate property tax or land value property taxation. And I want to thank again John Anderson, a professor at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, for talking to us about all of that. Now, though, this is a real proposal. This is something that we are mulling over here in the city of Detroit and that the mayor is trying to get the votes in Lansing to make sure that we can actually try it. So we want to have another conversation about what all this looks like and what it means. And we've got a really appropriate guest for that. Jay Rising is the chief financial officer for the city of Detroit. Jay, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. So let's start with where you are in this process. The mayor talked about this idea up on Mackinac, unveiled it for for everyone. Obviously, he couldn't just push a button and make it true. Uh, Talk about where you are in the process of actually implementing something like split rate taxation in the city of Detroit. Sure. So as you know, um, it's a process where we have developed the concept. We think we have a pretty good handle on how we think it can work in the city and uh, under Michigan law. Uh, we will need 
state Lansing state approval of the legislature and the governor uh, through some legislation authorizing this to happen. Uh, and so right now, we're going through what the mayor announced at uh, Mackinac that we are wanting to talk to um, interest groups and have listening and working group discussions about um, the effect of the tax on different types of property um, so that we can make sure there's no unintended consequences of what we're trying to do. You know, Michigan has had a uh, property tax in place for 130 years, and this is radically transforming uh, taxation for the state and the cities who would like to use this. Um, and so, you know, such a transformation really does, should be done carefully. I'm trying to do that. So uh, let's talk about how different the rates might look. I'm a homeowner here in the city of Detroit. I know what my tax bill looks like. I also know that for vacant land, often the tax bill is something like $500 or $1,000 a year. What would the split rate do to to the sure. gap between those two things? Uh, sure. Uh, now, as a home homestead or a homeowner in the city, you have a millage rate of about 89 mills, mm-hmm. uh, 60, 69, excuse me, 69 mills. That includes about 20 mills from the city's operating levy and about six mills from the state education tax. The idea is to exempt those two those two levies. You would not collect those levies on, on your property. And in place, we'd impose a new levy on your land. To make this a re- fairly revenue-neutral tax uh, for the city, um, the rate would have to go up, but the incidence will change. Homeowners who have a lot more value in their improvements than they do the land will see a tax cut. Vacant land, who has all the value in the land, would see a tax increase because we'll increase the number of mills. We'll cut 26 mills, but we'll impose for the city and the state only another 185 mills approximately. Um, So you'll see a a much bigger increase on your land, but the value of your land is only, on average in the city of Detroit for a homeowner, about 4%. And and over time... I imagine what you what the the goal is is that you incentivize development of more of this vacant land so that it can be taxed at a higher value and you might be able at some point to lower the rate for everyone. Is that is that uh, it's exactly right. Okay. Uh, so you think of it, a lot of development in Detroit right now, you have to run the hurdles for, to get a tax exemption because it's just not economic. Our, our property tax rates, especially on non-homestead property, um, uh, uh, to make that development um, rather than do it in the surrounding areas. What we're trying to do is really lower the barrier to entry for Detroit. So you can do development in Detroit or you can do development in the surrounding area, probably on level footing. Um and it changes the tax abatement statutes in a way that right now you would get a 15-year tax abatement down to about these levels that we're proposing. Well, this would be permanent. So you don't have a situation where I'm a developer, I'm creating, for example, affordable housing. Uh, I'm going to maintain affordable housing as part of my deal with the city for my abatement for for the 15 years I have my abatement. After that, the, after that, the restrictions come off. They may want to sell the property at that time, but the property value goes immediately down because my tax rate just goes automatically up. So that makes initial financing much harder. That makes the interest in doing the development much harder. Because, But what we're doing is saying, you have a permanent tax cut. Any tax, city taxes, any state education tax will be reduced to zero on the improvements you make to land. Now, you'll pay higher on your land, mm-hmm. but your improvements are really the, the bulk of the value of a piece of property. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking with Jay Rising. He is the chief financial officer for the city of Detroit. Uh, he's a seasoned financial expert. This is someone who spent a really long career in finance at the state level. He served three different Michigan governors as a treasurer, deputy treasurer, and advisor. Most recently, he was cabinet secretary for Governor Gretchen Whitmer. We are talking about the proposal here in Detroit to move to a split-rate taxation system for property taxes, where land and dwellings would be taxed at different rates. Uh, it's, the idea is to 
put more of the burden on people who are holding vacant land in the city of Detroit and ease some of the property tax burden on homeowners. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call. Are you a property tax payer here in the city of Detroit? I am. I know all of us uh, complain pretty mightily, especially this time of the year when tax bills just came out about how high they are in the city, uh, how high they have been for such a really long time. Do you think those taxes are fair? What would you do to ease the tax burden on folks in Detroit? Do you think this idea of splitting the rates between land and uh, dwellings makes sense? Is that something that will lower the amount that we're that we're all paying. Uh, what other ideas do you have for reforming property taxes here in the city to get things going in terms of neighborhood improvement, development, all of the things that we want and desperately need in the city to make it a better place to live? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Jay, before we get to our listeners, I, I, I want to throw something out that I've been thinking about w- w- with regard to this proposal. So, from a policy perspective, I can completely wrap my mind around why this mis- makes sense and I can understand what the goal is. But I always think that there's an important gap between policy and behavior. So, if I am someone who is sitting on vacant land in the city of Detroit, and you increase my taxes, uh, why would I pay them uh, is, is one of my questions. Uh, why wouldn't I just refuse to pay the taxes, wait out the three-year period during which I can do that without the county seizing my property, and then maybe pay a little of them or enough to stop uh, to stop that that foreclosure, to stop from from losing it, hoping that uh, ultimately this this goes away. And and I guess th- what I'm getting at is th- the value of this land to the people who hold it is low, and that's part of the reason that they don't develop it. That it's not it's not much of an asset, and so the the threat of losing it uh, if you don't pay higher taxes is a pretty minimal threat to someone who's sitting on something like that, still waiting for it to improve in value so that they could make money off it. What is, is that, does that have to be part of our calculus here? I think it has to be part of the discussion. I mean, I'm hopeful that, uh, and I expect that people who have bought property around the city and speculation of what may happen to values and what may happen to development did so with good intentions. And, uh, and really do want that property and are holding that property for the potential development of, of their property. And, and so as a speculator, I'm not going to let this go just because my taxes go up from $35 for my lot to $100 for the lot. Um, it, it, it's a, and what, what, what is equally as important in this proposal is, well, there may be the penalty of holding this land by, uh, by the increase of tax I have to pay. There's an incentive now because people are going to be interested in my land. Uh, and so my value will reflect that also. So in some ways, this is not a bad deal for speculators because developers will be more and more interested in development of land because the cost of development has just been decreased. Um, so there's a chance that someone may say, well, I'll just defer my tax bill by letting it go for three years and I'll pay the interest and penalty. I don't think it's a wise financial move. There's a risk associated with this also. If they had no interest in the property and really just was holding it because it was just cheap enough to you know, not, not throw away, mm-hmm. um, um, then they will be at risk of lo- loss of the property. We still have a foreclosure system in the, in the, in the city as much as we've tried to find ways uh, to help people avoid foreclosure. But if you, I own a piece of land or abandoned building uh, that I'm not maintaining in order just to have the low assessment on it, and, and you don't pay your taxes, we will foreclose on it. We'll, we'll have the it. county foreclose on it. Sure. Yes, uh, because someone will develop on, develop it, and we'll we'll work with someone to develop it if the owner doesn't want to keep it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? 
Good morning, Stephen. I am thinking about the tax abatement that uh, the well-to-do get. I'm thinking of the illages and the uh, mortgage guy. Mm-hmm. And they have huge swaths of land, and they get abatements where we don't that that we don't get in our neighborhoods. And when the city forecloses on property and it falls into disrepair and has to be torn down. We have uh, uh, neighborhoods that look like jack-o'-lanterns mm-hmm. with empty spaces that end up being dumping grounds. Yeah, Bernadette, absolutely great point, and it's, a, it, it's an important question because we have large land holders who also happen to be developers here in the, in the city and and there's a question i think about how this would how this would affect them and how the abatements that they get not necessarily for that vacant land but for their development i guess affect this problem of uh, of of low values uh, for for vacant land and the holding of those things jay that's a pretty complicated uh, question and an issue but i'll leave it to you to sort it out I'll give, let me give it a shot, because I, I, I think it's an important question. It's one that's been raised and we've heard. I I think the biggest thing I could say, two things. One is that this proposal reduces residential homeowner property taxes by 25%. So we are addressing the high tax rates on residential property owners. The second is we understand how difficult it can be to get abatements to develop property. What this proposal does is make it uniform for everyone. There's no process. It's guaranteed that you have a reduction. There's no tax on your on your improvement that you'll make. It's equivalent to what the abatements were being given out by council uh, to any developer who, who runs through the city's process and gets council approval. I don't. You don't need approval for this. Once it's in place, you have a permanent reduction on mm-hmm. your of your taxes on your development, um, and that's equivalent to a, an abatement for everybody. Any developer can have it. So it's not the Illiches, it's not the Gilberts, it's it's for every developer in, in the city. So, so what would be the practical effect, though? I mean, the, the Illiches in particular are sitting on a lot of vacant right. land. So are the Maroons. Uh, there are some other smaller developers who are doing the same. Would this would this push them to have to yes. develop? Uh, it would. It would eliminate one of the impediments, which is the the costs they're going to have to pay on the property taxes once I have a development because they've been waiting for for this, for the plans, they've been waiting for uh, abatement. Now, suddenly, it's your abatement's there. You don't have to do anything to get it. You can make your decision based on whether the project is economically feasible Okay, at the lower tax rate. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Jay Rising, the Chief Financial Officer for the City of Detroit. We're also going to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can make it part of the, prob- the, part of the program that way. Uh, we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your neighborhood. Your community. Your voice. Join the conversation on 1019 WBET. We're talking with Jay Rising, Chief Financial Officer for the City of Detroit here on Detroit Today. We're discussing the idea of split rate tax on property in the city, a proposal made by Mayor Mike Duggan that he says will ease the burden on homeowners and increase the burden on people who are sitting on land, speculators who are holding land, waiting for it to increase in value before they might sell it or develop it. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. And you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. This is a 
seriously uh, profound change that has been proposed to the tax system here in the city of Detroit. It would change a number of things. We want to make sure that people really understand what's happening and how all of it will work. Let's go back to the phones here and get to Paul in Detroit. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks so much, Stephen. Um, My question revolves around uh, farmers and the fact that they're making great improvements to the land. And this might be a slam dunk, but uh, is that improvement kind of counted as um, counted, counted to keep that lower rate? Or would they all of a sudden have a higher tax tax rate on their land, which they are making excellent use of, and they already have a hard enough time uh, making a living. I was going to say they're not making a lot of money, but they are. <laughs> they are doing something really important in the in the city. Paul, I really appreciate that question. Jay, what's the answer for farmers? You know, that is exactly the group that we want to talk to, um, because it's not intention to um, increase taxes on productive use of the land um, without a without a um, improvement. Um, beyond what what um, the current law would allow, um, so if farmers are have the ability right now to have their property exempt and put it into a conservation easement or a, or a, um, a a state agricultural abatement, uh, we want to make sure we keep those those programs open for them. Um, as as a whole, we don't look for what use of the land is being made if it's not if it's not improved. Um, crops are not necessarily an improvement to land um, uh, that's taxed in, in, on top of the land value. So right now, farmland is taxed at its, as at its productive value, which is you know as a farm. Um, so it's a, viewed as vacant land. But there's abatement programs and there's uh, other programs in state law right now uh, for at valorum taxes, and we want to investigate and understand how farmers are using those and whether we can make sure they're applying to this tax also. One of the things that we've had a long debate about in the city is, of course, land use overall, but especially agricultural use of land in the city, which has been on the rise for quite some time. I mean, we've always had that in Detroit, but it is a much bigger part of the overall parcel usage than it than it used to be. Is something like split rate tax going to incentivize more of that kind of alternative use of of land, you know, places that used to be homes or businesses that are now farms, or does it discourage that that kind of experimentation or 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 alternative thinking about things? I think that it actually encourages more the development of improvements upon land rather than alternative uses of land and leaving it as land. So land as storage, land as parking um, uh, is not encouraged by the tax. Um, so set the salvage yards that we see pop up in Detroit and nowhere nowhere else, um, you know, seem to be a, um, a function that the tax rate on land is is obsessed very low in Detroit. And so selfish yards are available to c- come here much easier. But what this is trying to do is say, if you're using the property as less than its best use, its most productive use, uh, you should have to pay for that. Um, and that's what land value taxes do. Yeah. Uh, but if you're using the property at a higher, higher value use uh, by making improvements on it, we want to encourage that. Again, Paul, really thanks for the call and the the great question. Let's go next to Jenny in Detroit. Jenny, what are you thinking about today? Well, my opinion is that the city of Detroit has the highest millage in the country. To my One of the highest millages, if not the highest millage in the country, and mm-hmm. that all our property taxes should be reduced. Uh, that's my first point. My second point is that it seems like the, the large developers are getting grants and abatements while you want to put a tax on the property owners who've been paying taxes when when those same developers left the city. Mm-hmm. And so if they've been paying the taxes and been here and believing in the city and paying these high, high millages when these developers were not interested in Detroit, why do you want to increase the tax on them now? My third point is it appears that the city's mandate is not to be a partner to big developers to help them not only acquire the land cheaply because now you're incentivizing people to give up their land 
for foreclosure or lose their land for foreclosure or sell their land cheaply because they can't afford this high tax rate so that now the developers can come in and sweep in and get it cheap and on top of that get an abatement and not pay taxes for 20 years, get grant money on top of that and the hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. while it's like a reverse Robin Hood. You're taking mm-hmm. from the poor. Uh, Jenny, I, I think that's a really great Great point. Uh, I'm glad you called. Jay Rising, how, how is this not shifting the burden again more toward homeowners and less toward big developers? Uh, and let me, and, and there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so I, I'll try to be very clear. You, the proposal actually reduces the burden on homeowners. It lowers the tax by about 25% of their total tax bill. Your property tax as a homeowner is the accumulation of multiple millage by multiple different local units. The schools have 13 mills operating debt, 18 mills non-homestead uh, uh, mills. Uh, the city has 20 mills operating. The county has their millage. So there's a lot of tax on it's not the city levying these taxes. It's all the accumulation of it. This is way too high. Uh, and it's discouraging development in the city, and it's discouraging homeowners to buy in the city and to stay in the city. So what we wanted to do with the proposal was take homeowners especially and say, your value in your in your property is all in your home. There's very little in the land. There's like 4% on average. So if I shift the tax to the land for homeowners and away from the the building on the, your house, it's going to lower your tax because the rate I'm going to impose on your land uh, that percentage of your property value will will show a decrease in your total tax bill. That was the in, intent. So the intent is to say development should be taxed less. Use of, uh, holding vacant property should be taxed more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes Detroit uh, from the top ten in the neighboring of neighboring cities around it uh, down to you know the middle of the pack, um, going from a on a $250,000 home in Detroit from $8,500 to about $6,200. Uh, and in cities, uh, in this, in big cities in the state, we're number one right now, takes us down right to the middle of the top 10. Yeah. So what we tried to do is lower tax burden for homeowners um, and, and increase it for unproductive use of land. Yeah. So, so quickly also, what about people who participate in the side lot? program, which is really popular in Detroit. If, if sure. I've got a vacant lot next to my house that I own, am I going to see the taxes on that go yeah. up? Um, you will see the taxes on that go up. Right now, it's on average $30, $35. Uh, that could go up to $90 to $100. Um, but you would have to have more than three side lots to make up for the average uh, reduction on the on your homestead piece of property. Um, so, uh, so that we've thought about this and realized, and you know, on average, people have a couple side lots at the most. But if you have three uh, side lots, you'll still be you'll still break even. Ninety seven percent of the homeowners in Detroit will see a tax reduction. We've guaranteed the other three percent will not see an increase. Okay, Jay Rising, Chief Financial Officer for the City of Detroit, it was really really great to have you here to help us sort through this really profound change that uh, has been proposed for property taxes. I hope you will come back as we get more into this uh, issue and get it through the legislature to, to help our listeners understand what's going to happen. Thanks so much for joining Loved us. It. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to look at the recent trial surrounding the estate of the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, and why so many were captivated by the story. Here's a hint. All of us have questions about what happens to our possessions when we leave this world. How should we be planning for that? We're going to talk about it with Darren Finding, who's an attorney who specializes in probate law, Ryan Patrick Hooper, who's the host of Culture Shift here on W. DET and Nick Austin, who's a producer for Detroit Today and also an attorney. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. 
Detroit and the world, of course, lost an incredible icon when Aretha Franklin passed away in 2018. But while the Queen of Soul historically made headlines for her incredible music, it's the resolution of her will and the division of her estate following a trial in probate court that has everybody talking this week. Initially, when Aretha passed away, her family thought she didn't have a will and that her assets would be divided equally among her four sons. But later, two potential handwritten documents became the subject of a long battle over her assets. One is a more detailed writing that contains about a dozen pages. It's dated 2010 with signatures on every page. It was found in a locked cabinet. The other is a four-page document that was dated 2014, literally discovered under a couch cushion with a questionable signature. And that became the subject of this five-year legal battle. Well, this Tuesday, the major question at issue in this battle was resolved as a jury determined that this four-page handwritten document represented the singer's last will and testament. But think about that. If you scribble something down on a piece of paper and it gets lost in the couch cushions, that carries as much weight as a will and testament that you might put together with a lawyer and have signed appropriately? Does that make sense? And doesn't it make you think about your own life and your own assets? How do you make sure that things that you want to have happen with those things after you're done actually take place? To help us answer those questions and talk more about this issue, I'm joined by three people who have absolutely been captivated by what's been happening this week. Ryan Patrick Hooper is the host of Culture Shift, which is heard Monday through Friday right here on WDET at noon. Ryan, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah. Ryan also has lots of other jobs. He is a freelance journalist for the New York Times and NPR and recently published pieces for both of them covering this trial. I'm also joined by Darren Feinling. He is an attorney who specializes in probate law and he is president of the Probate Pro. Darren, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. Great to be here. It's Finling, but you are very Finling. close. Yeah, Finling. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> very close. Yeah, uh, it was close. And rounding out the conversation, I am also joined by Nick Austin, who is the host of Soul Saturday. Heard Saturday nights here at 8 on WDET. He's also a producer for Detroit Today and an attorney. Nick, welcome back to the studio. Always great to be with you, Stephen. All right. So I just want to talk first about the fascination with this case. Everyone I know is talking about it and looking at it. And I have sensed a little bit of panic in people's voices as they witness what's happened here. This scribbled document found in a couch cushion is what decides what happens to Aretha's assets. But but Ryan, this really is about star power and our fascination with popular people's lives, stars' lives, what happens to them, not just when they're here, but when they're gone. Yeah, you've got three of her sons involved in this trial, trying to figure out which one is the will. You know, those those brothers are split, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it feels like succession, like on HBO, right? It's a very similar thing to that final season <laughs> of that show. And uh it gives it a lot of drama because there is quite a bit of, of bad blood between the brothers because of this long five-year legal battle. So that adds to it. Getting any details into Aretha Franklin's life, that adds to it. You know, you said lost in the couch, but the reality was this was kind of filed in the couch. <laughs> it was filed there. Because of testimony from her sons, but both on the, the warring side here saying she really existed on this couch. She spent a lot of time there. She always had important documents around and she slept there, which, you know, we were talking about it a little bit. Wills are often found stuffed under a mattress. Where In this you, case, where you sleep, sure. This was Aretha's mattress, according to testimony from her son. So I think that is a fascinating piece of it. And we have been waiting so long to figure out what's going to happen with this estate. Of course, we want to count the numbers that are coming out of this state. What was left in the bank account? Yeah, and how right. much is that house in Bloomfield <laughs> Hills worth? And are they going to sell it? Or are they going to live in it? Um, and also, what's going to happen with the estate now? Now that it's settled, do we start to see tribute concerts? Do we start to see uh, 
maybe a holographic tour of Aretha Franklin. Those things will start to be decided now that we have a clear answer to what her final wishes were. Yeah, yeah. So, Darren, I want to bring you into the conversation here and just start with what on earth is going on here? This seems, I think, to a lot of people counterintuitive that the more formal document expressing her will and testament takes a backseat to this this document that is just kind of written down on the on a piece of paper and and found in a couch how can that possibly be the law well i think that most people believe that somebody of aretha franklin's stature would have a group of lawyers who would have prepared a proper estate plan but that's not always the case, and we've seen that. I was going to say, other... have you ever heard of rock stars? Yes, there are. <laughs> this is not a... the way they operate. That's right. There's a lot of distrust among professionals. Many of these people have been burned by their contracts earlier in their career, and they have a lot of distrust. So the fact that she slept on top of her will is not terribly surprising to me. To your point, though, this is what we call a holographic will. A holographic mm-hmm. will is not a traditional will. It's a will that is in substantially the handwriting of the individual. It's dated and signed. And if you look at the 2010 will and the 2014, both of them are holographic. Both of them are non-traditional. These are not legal legal Zoom or created by a law firm. Mm -hmm. These were in her own handwriting. And they're a bit unintelligible if you read it. Some of it is very clear and some of it is very hard to decipher. One of it, one is much longer with a lot more detail, and one is much shorter. But that's not the issue. It's not about the amount of detail. It is about how did, did this jury correctly determine the intent of Aretha Franklin, her last will and testament, what were her intentions, and the jury of six in front of Judge Callahan's courtroom ruled that the March 2014 will was the expression of her last will and testament. And so what do you tell people who are watching this and maybe fretting a bit about their own estate, about maybe their parents' estate? What, what is the way to avoid – this has been going on for five years, and it's pretty bitter. Uh, and there was a real question about what she wanted and what should be respected. How do you not find yourself in that same situation? Well, we know that – Most people don't want there to be a fight. They don't want there to be litigation after they have died. And we also know that the creation of a will is a very emotional exercise. People are afraid of doing it. Mm -hmm. They have to face mortality. They have to make difficult decisions about the complicated family that they live with. Most I mean, the very not, idea of confronting those questions is it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And I know lots of other people as well. Absolutely. It's very difficult to face in writing and put in writing that you're going to disfavor one child over another or disinherit a family member. So it's a very emotional experience. The obvious is to work with a skilled, competent, capable probate estate planning lawyer. That's obvious. That's easy. But for many people, they can't afford it. They're scared. There are, they don't know how to face it. Michigan actually has a statutory will, which is like a fill-in-the-blank will that you can use without even hiring a lawyer. And there are other alternative ways to do estate planning. There's a lot of electronic ways of doing it through like the, the legal Zoom or other types of, of, of online solutions. But the best way is to work with a skilled, competent probate lawyer mm-hmm. to think these things through so that you can avoid the litigation. And Stephen, I think something yeah, to think ahead, about Ryan. here between 2010 and 2014, a lot changed for Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. She became sick during that time. Uh, her grandchildren were, were getting older, and, and they are very represented in that second will, that 2014 will. Her youngest son, Kalf, is the only son that has given her grandkids, four grandkids, and it seemed like that had become a priority for her. So this change in mind of where things should go between 2010 and 2014, 
It adds up. Her yeah. cha- her life changed quite a bit in that yeah. time. So it makes sense narratively as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Nick, you and I uh, had a pretty interesting conversation <laughs> and a few laughs about this uh, yesterday. Y- your your take on it, though, is is pretty interesting. You know, I was thinking about this actually before I had a chance to talk to Ryan, who's been the boots on the ground with this, and talk to Darren a little bit about it as well. You know, when I saw the reporting on this story, it seemed to me you have an executed will versus something found in a couch. And that's a lot of the story that you hear in a lot of places. But when you talk to somebody who's actually observed the trial and seen the documents, and I've had a chance to look at both wills now, uh, my actually my my opinion on this has changed a lot. And that's why I think it's important for us to understand when you have jury trials like this, when you sometimes when you see verdicts, it's the jurors, it's the judge that has really seen a lot of information that doesn't necessarily make its way up. In this point, they're dealing with the difficult uh, undertaking of figuring out what was her intentions. And that's tough on any level. So what's always been fascinating to me with this is how do you figure out someone who passed away what their intent was? That's why if you don't want to have that fight, I'd recommend to anybody out there, take this as a signal. Yeah. You yes. know, you don't take want your seriously. people fighting over you. Uh, just get something down on paper. And mm. she was so private. That's a sad part of this is that Aretha Franklin was a very private person, mm-hmm. wanted to stay private. Mm-hmm. And because of this nasty, bitter bickering that we've seen over the past five years, those final wishes were not really adhered to. We've learned a lot about Aretha Franklin. <laughs> we've learned a lot about her family. We've gotten a vision into her life that she never wanted us to really have. And it reminds me a lot of after Prince died. Mm -hmm. You know, when that family got involved, they started doing a lot of things with Prince's estate that Prince would have hated. (laughs) And and, and that's an unfortunate part of this. And again, a reminder to get those wills in order because if you want to stay private. Get it buttoned up before uh, you leave. You know, Ryan, you you just referenced privacy. So one of the things that an estate planning lawyer can do is to keep the affairs private. And the way you do this is you not just create, you don't just create a will, but you create a will and a revocable living trust. Mm. They work hand in hand. You take all of your assets and you title them in the name of your trust. So upon your death, you avoid probate altogether. Nobody becomes aware of your assets, how you are distributing your uh, financial affairs post-death. It all flows privately through the trust and nobody becomes aware of it. So in her attempt to create a private document, hide it under her mattress Mm -hmm. or her couch cushion, she could have, had she worked with an estate planning lawyer, solved this problem quite easily. And most people who have accumulated assets like she has, work with estate planning lawyers to do this and avoid probate altogether. One of the greatest reasons to create a trust or to go to an estate planning lawyer is to avoid the probate process. It's one of the great selling points among estate planning lawyers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to go quickly to the phones here. And if you want to join us, if you've got questions or comments about wills and testaments, about what's happened this week with the estate of Aretha Franklin, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Let's go back to Bernadette in Old Redford, uh, back for another segment. Uh, I <laughs> What's am. on your mind? Yeah. <laughs> interesting topic today. (laughs) I am a homeowner without kids. I have one sister and uh, some nieces. I am interested in the explanation of a ladybird deed. Oh, sure. Hmm. Ladybird deed. I don't know what that is either. It's a great, a great question. So a ladybird deed is an estate planning document for real estate. It's what we call an enhanced life estate. Here's how it works. You take your property, You deed it to yourself with appropriate language, and then there's a named beneficiary. The beauty of this is that upon your death, the beneficiary takes without the necessity of probate. They receive it upon death. And during lifetime, you can still deed the property to other people. You can mortgage the property, and you can qualify for need-based benefits like Medicaid. So a ladybird deed is a very effective estate planning tool and it's used in circumstances like you just described. No family, maybe I just own a house, I want to avoid probate, do a ladybird deed. I can explain further, but 
That's yeah. the essence of it. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like most of us need to have a conversation with you privately <laughs> about how we make sure we're but, in the but right But with that ladybird deed, we're not going to stick it under the couch. We're going to record it. <laughs> That's right. We're going to record, record it with a registry. But in Michigan, needs. you apparently can if That's you right. want to. <laughs> so, so, Ryan, uh, we've only got about a minute left. Is this the end of this saga that has grown up around Aretha Franklin since her death? As you point out, this was a really private person who... Who would not have wanted this in any form? Are we finally past all of that? We're we're past this part of it, and now we have a whole new, uh, I'd call a sequel, to be paying attention to. Because now that there's clear control of the estate, and they're going to work out these issues. It's again, what what is going to happen to that estate, right? Mm-hmm. It, are, are we going to see those tribute concerts? Do you start seeing a lot of compilation CDs? Do unreleased tracks start coming out? You know, this estate is at a point where... The biopic with Jennifer Hudson, that's all in the rear view. Yeah. So wh- what are they thinking about now of how they keep her legacy alive? And are the kids concerned with the integrity of it? I've already heard rumors of trying to trademark her signature and put that on clothing, a new apparel line coming through from the kids. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And if they can get along, because they kept telling yeah. us that we're friendly outside of the courtroom, but my sources also say... There is no truth to that whatsoever. There's a lot of bad blood between the brothers. Maybe this exposure, because of this litigation five years post-death, is reigniting some of the value of her assets. This is... Uh, this is I mean, front you, page news yeah. all over the country. And when you talk and about people are interested in assets, it's not just house or money. It's also all of the things she created. And, the music. And the music and which, what which, happens to it. As one lawyer put during the trial, we're going to be listening to Aretha Franklin over the next 300 years, yeah, that's, right? That's right? So that's the, right. the main beef in this, in this will is the fact of those music royalties, which the three brothers split equally. Yeah. Okay, uh, great to have all three of you here. Ryan Patrick Hooper, Darren Finling, Nick Austin to talk about uh, what's going on with the Queen of Soul. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to replay one of our favorite conversations with Sharon McMahon, who explores how we can remain curious in a politically polarized time. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.